Summer's almost here. Yay, right? So, when's the last time you tried on your swimsuits and summer clothes? If you could get back into summer shape in one visit, would you do it? Here's Dr. Brian Strand for Sonobello to explain. It really is quite remarkable. Sonobello doctors use a technology called microlaser fat removal, and the results are amazing. We customize your procedure to accomplish your goals. Just share with us the problem areas where you'd like the fat in inches removed. And in one visit, they're gone, permanently. I can't tell you how often I hear clients say how many years they've been trying to diet and exercise those inches away. And we did it in one comfortable visit. It's time to get your summer on. Visit any of our Sonobella locations across the U.S. And right now, you can save $250. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. That's sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I truly am Kevin Randall. Normally, I... Um, have a bit of a rant to begin the program, but today we're going to hold it till the last segment uh, because of the way scheduling things work here. I'm going to be joined here by Michael Schratt, who is a private pilot, aviation uh, historian, who has been investigating UFO encounters for over 25 years. Between 2008 and 2009, Michael meticulously reviewed a minimum of 50,000 cases which were prepared or preserved at the QFOS Center in Chicago, I wanted you to note that I made, I was able to pr pronounce meticulously. I think that's <laughs> great. In an effort to maintain an important part of our national history, Michael has recreated dozens of highly credible UFO cases by the use of drawings, illustrations, and commissioned artwork. Many of these include USO, unidentified submerged objects, actual extraterrestrial encounters, and prehistory of UFO cases which have never seen the light of day. Michael has appeared on multiple me media platforms, including the following Coast to Coast, AM. I got get on there periodically myself. Um, the History Channel, Paranormal Matrix, UFO Hunters, Fade to Black. In addition, Michael has been a guest speaker at multiple UFO conferences, including the following Phoenix MUFON, Orange County MUFON, International UFO Congress, MUFON Symposium, and UFO Con. Welcome to A Different Perspective, Michael. Thank you, Kevin. Good to be with you. I don't think we've met before, have we? Technically, no, but we've spoken via email multiple times over the years. We have. You, you may not remember that, but it's true, yes. <laughs> I don't remember much of anything at this stage of my life, I'm afraid. Okay. I have many, many Biden moments, it appears, so there you go. Um, one of the things we wanted to talk about, or I wanted to talk about, you published a book called Dark Files, A Pictorial History of Lost, Forgotten, and Obscure UFO Encounters. What possessed you to select that as a, I guess, a topic for your UFO book? Okay, that's a good question. Well, being close to Q, I was good friends with Mark Rodiger over at the center there. And over a period of about three years, he gave me full access to the collection. And so I really did go through all 50,000 cases there minimum, talking about boots on the ground research. As you know, this isn't an internet thing, right click, save as. This is actually going into the department, going through the file cabinets, pulling these cabinets out, looking through each and every manila folder, picking out the cases that had a detailed three-page report, kind of a flight path, and then a drawing, sketch, or illustration to go with it. And from there, I kind of did a SOLIDWORKS model AutoCAD drawing. And then if there were a lot of compound curves, I commissioned the artwork. And I really wanted to make these cases come alive and bring them up to today's standards. And that's what the book is all about. Did you 
uh, you, you were looking for cases with, I guess, a, a great deal of information in the files, but did you look to see if they had been um, studied since they were first reported and maybe found to be some kind of a mundane object or possibly a hoax? Did you do any kind of investigative work beyond what was in the files? What I, what I found, Kevin, is I think a lot of these were, were filed away and they were just lost to history. You know, we can go over a couple of those, but I honestly feel like they just came in, they were documented, they were registered, and then they were filed away. Now, there could have been some additional research done, but on a lot of these cases, I just don't think they saw the light of day. Well, I noticed in, in the book, you uh, talked about the Cape Girardeau UFO crash from 1941. And I find that one a little bit uh, sketchy. What What is your opinion? I, I find it a little bit sketchy too, because that, that's really the, the $74 million question here. Where is the physical evidence for these crash retrievals? Now, Leonard Stringfield, as you know, uh, had documented multiple reports from these firsthand military witnesses, but as you know, he would not release the names of the witnesses. So we don't have anything to go on. Uh, we don't have any physical evidence. And that's what I'm trying to dig down and, and get that evidence. Well, we had Charlotte Mann's name. And of course, for those Correct. who aren't familiar with it, uh, she claimed that her father or her grandfather was involved in a uh, a retrieval operation in Cape Girardeau in 1941. He was out there and I guess gave last rites to the alien creatures that were killed in the crash and that sort of thing. My problem with the case is we don't have any firsthand witnesses. We have Charlotte Mann and that's basically it. Well, she's a, she's a firsthand witness to holding the photograph, but she's certainly not a firsthand witness to the bodies. Well, right? The photograph no longer exists. The photograph no longer exists. That's correct. And see, that becomes very problematic for me. We've got a single witness who didn't see anything except a photograph, and she cannot produce the photograph. So I, I find that a little bit problematic. I covered it in, in my book, uh, UFOs yeah. when, when UFOs crash, uh, crash when UFOs fall from the sky. I can't even remember the name of my own book. So there you go. Um, but I was bothered by that. I know Len, when he was doing his work, would um, gather the information and maybe not investigate it fully. Um, okay. but publish it so that others might come along and do the investigations. I think he, he talked to Charlotte Mann, I know, um, yeah. and got her to produce a uh, document that sort of gave a chronology of what she remembered. But, um, you know, that was one of the things that I always found kind of problematic, especially if the military had recovered something in 1941. It seems to me that the recovery operation in 1947 out of Roswell would have followed a different path. Good mm -hmm. question for you, Kevin. I recall about 18 years ago in our correspondence, uh, is it true that there are 22 bank boxes of original correspondence letters within the Leonard Stringfield collection? Is that true? Well, I, there were, there, there's quite a bit of material. I think there were like 73, 78 loose leaf notebooks full of material that went to Kufos. But there was a great deal of information that didn't go to Kufo. I'm not Kufo's, I mean MUFON. And there's a great deal of information that didn't go anywhere. And part of the problem was after Len had passed away, Stan Friedman called um, Len's wife and tried right. to get her to send everything to him. Okay. And I, I think he was less than um, candid or cordial about that. And, and so really? it, hmm. it kind of kind of inhibited her providing the information to any researchers. Okay. Okay. So. Um, so did, did you physically see the material, Kevin? Did you physically see the, the I bank was to his I was to his house a number of okay. times. Okay. And uh, Don Schmidt and I saw some of the material. Yes, we saw some of the material. Okay. And as I say, I think it's 70, it's either 73 or 78 loose leaf notebooks were donated to um, MUFON and in the Len Springfield collection. So you can see that material at the MUFON archives, wherever they are today. Correct, correct. <laughs> okay. They move around a lot. <laughs> but the the original, not the not the secretarial dictation notes, which are the 78 three-ring binders, but the original first-hand letters from military brass, pilots, co-pilots, air traffic controllers, people who are on the retrieval teams. Where is that material, Kevin? That, as I understand it, is still held by uh, Len Stringfield's wife and the family. And they're reluctant to let that go. That's my understanding. I have seen some of that material. When we visited Lynn, I know that he wanted to maintain his uh, agreements with people not to release their names. 
Good. Okay. But I think what he did when Don and I were there, um, and we were talking specifically about the Roswell case, um, he would inadvertently reveal to us some of the material. And what I remember specifically was the letter he got from um, Pappy Henderson's wife, Sappho okay. Henderson. Yes. And he wouldn't tell us who it was and he wouldn't give us the address. And yet I could read upside down the address and her name <laughs> off the letter. Yes. And, well, we, we did a number of times. And I had to keep going to the bathroom so I could write the stuff down. <laughs> oh, okay. And then when I, when I finally wrote to uh, Sappho Henderson, you know, I, I, I transposed two of the letters, two of the numbers in the address, but the neighbors got the letter to her. Okay. And so okay. she contacted us. But I think Len was trying to live up to his agreement. Yeah. And yet providing us with the clues we needed to get to the places we needed to go on that. Okay. So I think that's, that's what was going on there. I think Len was, and, and as, as I said, you know, talking to Len a number of times, I think his attitude was that he wanted to, um, gather as much of this information and he didn't have time to vet it all. And so he published his um, inner sanctum monographs right. with, with the information in it as much as he could, hoping that it would key something in someone else's mind, some other researchers and, and cause them to go forward with the information. So I think that was one of the reasons he did that sort of thing, but he was very careful and very uh, meticulous and very honest in what he was doing with dealing with the witnesses. I always kind of respected him for that. And I respected his attitude of, I'm not going to reject this because I find it particularly uh, unbelievable. I'm going to put it out there so that if others are interested in this, they can follow up on it. Do you know anyone who was at his 1978 Retrievals of the Third Kind lecture at the MUFON Symposium? I've got a copy of the, I'm sure you've seen it too. I've got a copy yeah. of the, the speech and I, I right. well, some of the members of KUFOS would have been there, I'm sure. Um, okay. I don't know if Is Don Schmidt was there. I don't know if Jerry Clark was there. Jerry Clark. I think Jerry it'd be Clark nice to see a, a video recording of that. I know it's early, but it'd be nice to see that if anyone recorded it at all. You know? Well, I would, MUFON would have recorded that stuff and, uh, what 78 uh you know videotape was just becoming yeah especially the video cameras so it's, it becomes a little bit problematic there mm -hmm. i noticed by the clock on the wall i'm running out of time in this first segment here we're going to have to break away uh okay. your book again is uh dark files a pictorial history of lost forgotten and obscure 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 ufo encounters available on amazon i've looked it up on amazon for those interested in that sort of thing and um my website is, of course, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Uh, do you have a website? Oh, well, 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 do you have a website? I do not have a website. Technically okay. No. Well, then we will be back right after this with Michael Sherratt, and we will be talking about his book and looking at some of the cases that are uh, investigated in there and some of the illustrations from that book. So we will be back right after this, so please stick around. To be accosted in her bed and abducted by aliens was the last thing Michelle expected. Yet the fateful morning of her destined death changed everything. Lord Lan Ramos, Alpha King of Vidar, the monstrous befanged alien looming over her bed, was her destined mate come to save her from certain death. He is a telepathic mute shifter. Can Michelle accept him and his animal? Once on Lan's home planet, Michelle becomes increasingly psychic, revealing her as the fabled Oracle of Vidar. As factions conspire to destroy them, will they overcome mounting threats? Will Michelle's growing gifts save them or ultimately destroy her? Don't miss this sci-fi shifter romance with charismatic and engaging characters. Get your copy today, The Oracle of Vidar, available on Amazon or kahiraodonnell.com. That's C-A-H-I-R-A-O-D-O-N-N-E-L-L.com. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, simultv.com, simultv.com. What's simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. 
SIMULTV.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a SIMULTV.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about SIMULTV.com. She even spelled it out for me. SIMULTV.com, Sonny Boy. SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com, Sonny Boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com. Uh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Are you ready to learn the business skills you need to accelerate your career? The Ohio State University Fisher College of Business is now offering its highly ranked working professional MBA entirely online. Whether you choose to attend on campus, online, or a mix of both, you're in control, balancing the demands on your busy schedule. Don't wait. Start your personalized MBA journey this fall. Visit go.osu.edu slash WPMBA to learn more and apply. The Ohio State University Max M. Fisher College of Business, where principled leaders are created. And I am back. I am joined by Michael Schratt. We're talking about his book, which is cleverly called um, Dark Files, A Pictorial History of the Lost, Forgotten, and Obscure UFO Encounters. We had been talking about um, Cape Girardo, which uh, I just brought up because I, I find that case a little bit interesting, but problematic, I suppose I should say. Uh, in, the, in the book, you... Uh, Talk, touched on one case, and we'll get a, a, a photo up here pretty soon of that, uh, in sure. Temple, Oklahoma, um, which is part of a, the Blue Book Files, as a matter of fact. And it's That's I think correct. it's one of the few cases, I think there's three cases in the Project Blue Book Files where uh, they talked about seeing occupants that were not labeled as a psychological problem. Uh, Lonnie Zamora's case is one of them, and there's a case from uh, Europe is the third one. Tell us a little bit about this case, and we've got the illustration up there now. Sure, thanks. Uh, I really love this. This is my favorite Project Blue Book case. You know, for, for only a reason that this is this is not my case. This is the United States Air Force government case. This is not my case. So anyone's certainly welcome to verify this at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. So just to set the scene here, it's March 23rd, 1966. The primary eyewitness is an electrical engineer by the name of Eddie Laxon. And it's 5.05 in the morning, and he's on his way to Shepard Air Force Base. It's, the sun is just coming up over the horizon, so it's still a little bit dark out. He's driving down the road, and his headlights intersect something that's blocking the road at a 90-degree angle. And it can only be described as what is looking like or similar to a bowling pin tipped over 90 degrees laying across the road. So he steps out of the car. He's looking at this craft. And uh, we'll start at the kind of the forward end here. Now, this thing was about 75 feet long, about eight feet high. And on the forward right section of the illustration you hear, now that this is uh, via Tom Bogan, got to give him credit for this illustration. There was what looked like a World War II B-26 bubble transparent canopy. That's what it looked like on the forward right hand section. As we go further aft, you can see that there were two beaming spotlights that were pointing forward, two beaming spotlights pointing vertically down. This whole craft was propped up off the ground about three feet by what looked like pogo landing gear. Now, as we go further aft on the craft on the upper spine, there's a spire and stinger that sweeps back that terminates in about a 10 inch diameter ball. Now this typical, this particular feature is something that I've seen and probably Kevin, you've seen this as well. We keep seeing these prongs, protrusions, and things sticking out of these craft. Uh, it just keeps popping up again and again in different cases, different locations, different sighting reports. Now, on the right or starboard side of this craft, there was an air stair door 
and there was a man about five foot ten. He was wearing two-piece military green fatigues. He was he had a baseball cap with the bill turned up, and he was shining a flashlight near the bottom of the craft like he was looking at something. We'll return to him a little bit later. Now, aft of this air stair door opening, there was about a three and a half foot diameter porthole window that was divided into four equal pie segments. Just aft of that, written in black letters, and this is probably the most important part of this entire sighting, in black letters written vertically as follows, TL4768, written on the side of the craft. At the very end of this craft, there was what looked like flight control system that was just way too small to be aerodynamically efficient or effective. They were just way too small. So I'm thinking this could probably be something else. Now, this gentleman who had the two-piece military green fatigue that he was wearing, Eddie Laxon was so close to this gentleman with the flashlight. Number one, he said that if he saw him later in town that afternoon, he could recognize him. Number two, he said he was wearing ranking insignia on his shoulder, on his arm. So that's interesting. Now, when this gentleman with a flashlight saw that he was being watched by Eddie Laxon, he immediately climbed up the air stair door. He slammed the air stair door shut. Then, Kevin, there was a high frequency drilling noise. This whole thing rose off the ground about 50 feet, sat there for about 45 seconds, and then took off like a spark on a grinding wheel and made no sonic boom at all. So Eddie Laxon got back into his car, went down the road another half mile, and then off to the right, he saw a truck driver with the driver's side door open. The driver was standing on the, the running boards. Eddie Laxon pulled up to him and asked him if he was okay. And this truck driver proceeded to tell him that he saw about a 70-foot long what looked like a bowling pin just fly away. He had, he had seen the exact same thing that Eddie Laxon saw literally two minutes earlier. So we had independent confirmation of this case. Well, let me point out one thing that I think is very important. This is a case in the Project Blue Book Files. So it's, it's Temple, Oklahoma. The date again was? March 23rd, 1966. So if you go to like Fold 3, which is a, a website that allows you to look at the Project Blue Book files and you go to that date, you, go, you scroll down there, you can find this case in the Project Blue Book files. And what I say is interesting about it is it's one of the few where there's some kind of a being or creature or human involved right. in the sighting that the Air Force didn't write off as a psychological problem. This case is actually unidentified means the Air Force didn't know what the hell was seen there. And I think that makes it a very important case. When exactly. Exactly. And yes. your book is filled with illustrations like this. Are they full color in the book? They're full color in the book. And one thing I want to highlight, Kevin, is I've got a copy of the, because I want to reference my sources so that people can verify this information on their own. I've got the newspaper clipping here. It might be a little bit hard to see, but this is Eddie Lex, and This is the gentleman in question here. And this is from the Daily Oklahoman, March 1st, 1977, uh, 1977 here. And I'm just going to quote the top heading here. It says, Object Sighting Now Rude. And I'll just read just a couple of real quick sentences here. Now, this is Eddie Laxon speaking. Quote, what I saw was definitely not from space. The man was wearing fatigues and had a cap with the bill broken up like Air Force mechanics wear, Laxon said. It had common English letters on it. So here's here's a statement from an electrical engineer at Shepard Air Force Base, and he said that what he saw was not from space. This is one of ours, according to him. But you, the, you, it begs the question, um, where's the technology today? That is you don't the question. See that you know, that it, is it, the question. <laughs> you know, it suggests something very, very interesting. And it had, had it been an Air Force case, something the Air Force was involved with an experimental aircraft of some kind or spacecraft of some kind. Mm -hmm. Surely that case would have been a removed from the files because it would have been classified and, and B, uh, it certainly would be identified today after all these years. You well, my question is, if this if this statement is true, if this case is true, which I think it is, because why would this guy lie? And then again, the, the subject heading is object sighting now root. He regretted ever even mentioning this. He got calls from overseas different countries. He was woken up at five in the morning, 
it was just a barrage of attention that he didn't want any part of. People were ridiculing him. He regretted even mentioning it. And what that does, it actually adds to the credibility. It does not detract from the credibility. My question is, if this is true, and they already had the technology probably perfected long before 1966 to have this thing flying, uh, why wasn't Neil Armstrong briefed on this technology? What was the Saturn V booster for 7,700,000 pounds of static thrust? And why were the seven astronauts, why did they have to die in the Challenger accident on January 28th, 1986? Was Krista McAuliffe briefed on this technology before she strapped in? That's my question. Yeah, there, there are a lot of questions. Um, and, and you said, of course, there was some rank insignia on his, on his shoulder. It means he was an NCO um, because the officer ranks would have been on the collar. Uh huh. Okay. But I, I just don't understand this case at all um, because it's fascinating. As I say, if you look at the illustration that is in the Air Force Project Blue Book files, it's not nearly as nice as this one that you, you show here, but we do get the cross hatching well, window a little bit better. I've got your, this is his original drawing. I mean, it's extremely, extremely rough. But he's got everything represented here. You've got the TL4768. So it really boils down to, Kevin, do we really trust the, uh, the credibility of our fellow eyewitnesses? Uh, this guy didn't seem to have any reason to lie. He's a, he's a reputable gentleman at Shepard Air Force Base, electrical engineer. Seems to be like, like a credible witness. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I don't know why he would lie about that. And I right. can imagine the, well, you mentioned the, uh, problems that arose from him just talking about this a little bit. And that's kind of something we see throughout the entire UFO field, that if you see a UFO, suddenly you are subjected to all kinds of ridicule. Because um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know why people feel they have to do that. In today's environment, it'd be even worse with social media, uh, having access to uh, all of that kind of information. Anyhow, I, I find this is a fascinating case. And I, I want to stress once again, it is unidentified. It is reported the Project Blue Book files. You held up the illustration from the Project Blue Book files, right. and I've got a copy of it as well. Uh, so that's a much better looking illustration than what we had before. I thought um, we can go on to the next sure. case, which comes from Canada, Falcon Lake, Canada. Sure. And uh, I just have I just have a couple of uh, minutes here before I have to break away. Okay. Very quickly, uh, give me a little bit about this and we'll, uh, I'll interrupt you and we'll, we'll come back to it. Sure. Okay, so the date on this is May 19th, 1967. Primary eyewitness, as most of you know, is a man named Stephen Mekalik. Now, he was a rock hound. He was looking for minerals. Uh, he, he really liked to go outside. He was a kind of an outdoorsman. Just to set the scene now, he was wearing heavy leather gloves. He was wearing a plaid kind of shirt. Uh, he had jeans on. He had kind of work boots on. And he had a welder's goggle on so that he wouldn't wreck his eyes when he was chipping away at rocks. Now, let me he, let me interrupt here. We got go We're very good because we we see in the illustration we, yep. we know who the guy is. We've got the date. We yep. did. It, it is Falcon Lake, Canada. It is a Canadian sighting. Falcon so, Lake, Canada. Yes. Uh, overseas. We'll come back to that when we when we get back here. We'll we'll chat with that once again. The book is Dark Files. If, history of lost, forgotten, and obscure UFO encounters. My latest book cleverly is called Understanding Roswell. It is now available at Amazon for those of you who'd like to take a look at it. I think it's a um, more of a sober look at the Roswell case and where the information is today. And I think that uh, we should uh, keep in mind that not everything that's been talked about in Roswell is true. And we try to break some of that down. I will be back right after this with well, Michael Schratt will be talking about uh, UFOs still, so please stick around. Do you enjoy paranormal sci-fi romance, yet find yourself tired of the same old themes and storylines? Then you won't want to miss Kahir O'Donnell's latest exciting release, To Taste You Again. Alien Lord Kane McKean knew the moment that his destined mate was born. He watched from afar, waiting for her to grow from child to woman. However, before she was old enough, she was stolen from her home world by flesh pirates. Kane searched ten long years to find her held in a suspension chamber a 10-year-old girl in a woman's body. 
He rescued her and swore to give her time to grow up, but with his very life depending upon winning her as a mate, has he waited too long? Get your copy today. To Taste You Again by Kahira O'Donnell is now available on Amazon or kahiraodonnell.com. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, Simultv.com, Simultv.com. What's Simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a Simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. SIMULTV.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumbo Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumbo Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumbo Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumbo Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. And we are back with Michael Schratt. We're talking about the Falcon Lake, uh, Canada uh, case. And I interrupted you after you described his, uh, I guess, his eyewear. <laughs> That's fine. Okay, so we kind of discussed what he was wearing now. What he heard is some commotion near his location. There was a flock of birds that departed his vicinity. He looked and saw what appeared to be two about 40-foot diameter dish-shaped craft. One of them departed. It left the scene completely. The other one landed in his location, and it stood there just parked there for 30 minutes before he did anything at all. So he got a real good look at this thing before he even approached it whatsoever. Now, as he got closer, he noticed two interesting things. There was kind of a very interesting porthole section that was about, uh, you could say, three feet long, maybe two feet wide, which was an entry hatch. And then radial oriented about the vertical axis was a smaller hatch that had these very perfectly even spaced 1 16th diameter pinholes embedded within it. Now this hatch or exhaust port was much smaller than the entryway hatch. So he walked up to this hatch that was open and he could hear laughter. He could hear a language that he couldn't determine what it was. And so he responded in English in French and Spanish and German. He got no response that he could hear. At this point, this entry hatchway slams shut. The craft kind of lifts off the ground at about uh, 11 inches, 10 inches, starts rotating, and this exhaust port hatch lines up perfectly with his chest, and something happened, Kevin. He was burned. And what's interesting is the pinprick hole pitch pattern, location of these holes on this exhaust port, lined up perfectly with the burn marks on his chest that continually reappeared throughout entire, his entire life 
this is really a CE2 case because it's a, it's a, uh, basically it's a visual sighting and it has physical effects. He died only a few uh, years ago, and we've got multiple newspaper clippings where he talks about the smell of this craft consisted and stayed on his clothes. He became sick, so there was physiological effects, and this is one of these cases that are certainly top 10 within ufology. Well, we should also point out that the burn marks, um, there are photographs of the burn marks on his body. Correct. So it's not like he said, well, I was burned and, and nobody saw it. We've actually got photographs of that. Uh, who all investigated this? Was this officially officially investigated? Well, uh, interesting you mentioned that. I got a copy from one of my good friends, Antonio Huneus, who was able to secure, this is from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They're the ones who took the photograph. He actually uh, gave me a JPEG of the photograph of the landing site. And you can definitely see this demarcation of the radius of where this craft came down, comparing that to the soil on the outside of the circle there's definitely a difference there so it did leave you know physical effects physical evidence was there a conclusion drawn by the uh, canadians about i don't know what their conclusion was but we've got other newspaper clippings where he he was able to get back to the site and again it, it remains one of the top 10 cases within ufology so there was uh, there was an official investigation there was an official investigation and Antonio had, had given me those photographs. Now I believe I've got the newspaper clipping over here. Let me see if I can dig up uh, this one here. Now this is the fall smell persists. UFO cider suffers chest burns and he drew a sketch. He, he basically has stuck to his story the whole time, all the way until his last day. So, Again, it boils down to the credibility of these witnesses. Would they be lying? Uh, could he have faked these burn marks that continually kept coming back and reappearing over the years? It really boils down to the credibility of the reliability of these witnesses. Well, I have to, I have to say, I, I find it an incredible case uh, because of the physical evidence, not only the uh, physical evidence on, on his body, but the physical evidence that remained behind in the uh, the landing site, which is something that I think in uh, scientific arenas, they wish we had more of uh, the landing right. traces. So you have not just the witness testimony, but you have some kind of physical evidence. Um, but, he, but he was the only one that witnessed this. I, wasn't there some uh, fire uh, tower guys that saw something in the area at the time? There, there may be, Kevin, but I, I'm not familiar with that. Not uh, I could, only, could, only his testimony. I, I may be confusing it, but I know that there was a search for additional witnesses that uh, we, we never got. I um, was interested in uh, the drawings. I mean, the illustrations you have are just fantastic. And the one that kind of intrigued me, I think it's from Mobile, Alabama. Sure. So I, I'm skipping one. Yes, that yeah, one. Yeah. No problem. No problem. Uh, yeah, okay. Tell me a little bit about this case. Sure. Uh, this is another case that I was able to pull from the QFOS archive. They got this from the APRO Bulletin. Uh, I've got the references in the book. So we're talking about Mobile, Alabama, 1983. Primary eyewitness was returning back from a dinner engagement. It was about 9 p.m. She's driving down the road, and all of a sudden, she hears and feels a large boom. Her car starts shaking. She pulls off to the side of the road. She stops the vehicle. She gets out of the vehicle, opens up the Driver's side door looks under the car, thinking that the transmission may have fallen out. That seemed to be okay. She gets back in the car, drives another half mile down the road. She looks off to the right, and there's this clearing area. And she sees that it's very well lit. And she's, what she sees is what's depicted here. Now, this is virtually one-to-one -one identical to the original report within the airport bulletin. What she described is about a 276 foot long, 80 foot tall. It looks like a forward sphere that tapers back, kind of like a tapering wedding cake as it goes aft. We'll start at the top section here. There was a transparent window wraparound section that kind of was on the forward one third of the craft. And behind these transparent windows, she could see what she termed to be about five foot 10 humanoid looking beings with a slightly oversized head. They were wearing a one-piece tight-fitting white flight suit. 
they seem to be moving around in an antiseptically sterile environment. Now, below that, there was another transparent window section that wrapped around kind of the one-third forward section of the craft. Below that, there were multiple circular porthole windows, and she mentioned that these windows were throughout the entire craft, and she was in a position to look through one of these windows all the way through the entire craft through the other side, through the other windows on the other side. And when she did that, what she mentioned is on the interior of the craft, it reminded her of a, quote, cross beam and girder construction like a truss bridge or something you would see on an East Coast battleship dry dock when they're building, they're starting to build a warship. You have these bulkheads, you've got these stringers. That's what it looked like on the interior of this craft. Now, below these porthole windows, she said she could see what looked like six-foot diameter cylinders that were protruding from the craft. So here again, Kevin, we've got evidence of protrusions from these craft. Are, are these spark gap mechanisms? That's my question. Now, below these protrusions, she could see what looked like a door that was closing from right to left. And on the forward left-hand wall, she could see what was termed tubes, pipes, and cylinders. Now, this is another pattern recognition that I've got 15 other cases for. These same tubes, pipes, and cylinders show up on the Belgium Triangle, 1989-1990. They also show up on the Southern Illinois Triangle, January 5, 2000. So it's a pattern recognition that we're seeing in different locations, different times, different sighting reports. Now, I should mention this entire craft, according to the primary eyewitness, was held together with what looked like Golden Gate Bridge rivets. It's the best way to describe it. These, this thing was held together by rivets. Now, on the very bottom of this craft, there were two gondolas that had a transparent section with the same 5'10 humanoid-looking beings. They were wearing white one-piece tight-fitting flight suits. And on the upper section of these gondolas were literally hundreds of 24-inch by 24-inch highly polished mirror reflective devices that were in the form of a cross. Uh, she also mentioned that there was a, quote, whipping of the wind as this craft got near her vicinity. And in a nutshell, that is the uh, breakdown on this particular case. Well, this was a huge craft. Were there other witnesses to it? Only her. Only her. According and, to the April Bulletin. And, and, um, and this was in the April Bulletin? What? Uh, what yeah, I've, I've got that here. Let me see if I can pull that up for you here. Well, she's uh, driving down a highway that run not she's other driving down the road yes she's it's kind of a, a, a later road this is the actual bulletin here's the actual bulletin and i've got the date for you here this is volume 32 number two 1984 for anyone who wants to verify that but it's again single witness there's no physical single evidence witness. uh it seems like I would say there should have been other people to see, but I can also see that other people who may have seen this thing would be reluctant to tell anybody about it. Given that, the that could be. But what's interesting about this case, though, is that there, there's two pieces of data in this case that will actually, there's actually three pieces of data in this case that are also mirrored on other cases. Number one, the tubes, pipes, and the cylinders. That, that keeps on popping up. That can't be an accident. Number two, the rivets. I've got other cases of rivets holding these things together. Number three, these protrusions sticking out of these craft. If this is an alien or extraterrestrial spacecraft, and they're 100 million light years away from us, and they're, and they're thousands of years ahead of us, why do they need this? Why do they need these pipes and cylinders? Why do they need rivets holding their craft together? This seems to me, Kevin, a much more terrestrial-based technology. Well, I have to say, I, this is fascinating, and I, I love the illustrations. I wanted to actually get more of them up, and, and didn't have the opportunity. We don't have the opportunity to do it. I know you have to take take off here. Sure. So, um, once again, the book is Dark Files: A Personal History. Try to get Dark Files: A Pictorial History of the Lost, Forgotten, and Obscure UFO Encounters. Try next time to get a title that's easier to say. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. But it's filled. It's filled with those sorts of illustrations. I think it's worth the price just to see the illustrations, let alone the natives included in that. Um, thank you for taking time for. Thank you, Kevin. Here, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. Thank you, Kevin. Great to be with okay. you. We will. We will be back. I will be back right after this, and we'll talk a little bit about more more about UFOs, so please hang around. Thanks, Kevin.
So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens, and they kept repeating to me over and over again, Simultv.com, Simultv.com. What's Simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a Simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, Sonny Boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, Sonny Boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. And I am back, and I had a thought while I was waiting to come back. Uh, I have a, two other pictures that were uh, provided for us. They don't have any of the case information, but I thought we might want to take a look at them. One of them was from California. Don't know if we can get, yeah, from, don't know any of the details. I just wanted you to see the picture because uh, I find it fascinating. And the other one was from, what is it, um, Pudding Lake, Oregon. And this is something that happens in a, a number of cases where the UFO is interacting with the environment, sucking up water, as you see in this case. There's been a number of reports where UFOs have been seen near water sources kind of accessing the water sources. And then in a similar fashion, near power lines, maybe uh, diverting some of the electrical power. But I found both those pictures to be very interesting. And I, I thought I would just throw those up for those of you who'd like to look at them. Uh, you can see all the information and the details in his book, as I said, Dark Files, A Pictorial History of Lost, Forgotten, and Obscure UFO Encounters. Got through it that time without setting, setting it on fire, I suppose. Um, he, had to, he had to run off, and we knew this was going to happen before we uh, got to the program, that he had other commitments that uh, kind of interfered with him spending the entire hour with us here. So we, we said, yes, we'll let that go. I did want to talk a little bit about um, Project Moondust. Yeah, it's a book that I had just come out uh, a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago. Uh, the original title, the original book was called Project Moondust, cleverly, and a publisher approached me to, to republish it. And I said, no, we can't do that because there's been so much information that I've learned since that book. I wanted to just call it uh, Project Moondust rather than Project Moondust. And he, the publisher wanted to relate to the old title. But there's a great deal of additional information in there that we've learned over the 20 years after that book was published. And I think I've mentioned this before on the program. One of the things is there may never have been a Project Moondust. There was a Moondust, which may have been a code word for the gathering of UFO information. And that's kind of a little bit different. Project Blue Book had a um, headquarters, had offices, had an office staff, and that sort of thing. Uh, something with the code name Moondust didn't have people assigned to it permanently, but they called upon people to in, uh, become involved in the investigations. If something came into, say, the uh, Pentagon's command post that dealt with UFOs or something like that, they would initiate uh, a Project Moondust protocol, I suppose you'd call it. And they would uh, appoint people or gather people or send out people to uh, take a look at whatever this was the um, so so it wasn't a project in name, but they would operate under the name uh, the code word Moondust. So when you showed up, uh, there may have been a project officer appointed for a specific event, but it wasn't an ongoing thing. And this lasted from the uh, I believe the late late 1957, and I think it was sparked by the Soviet launch of uh, Sputnik, and 
Moon Dust was designed to retrieve returning space debris of foreign manufacturer unknown origin. And of course, the unknown origin would be UFO related. And going through the Project Blue Book files in, um, I think it was September of 1960, going through there, I found four cases labeled Moon Dust. They're not very good cases. They're very short-lived, uh, seconds. And I suspect they are more meteoric in um, origin than alien in that respect. But the point simply is that it shows that there was a UFO component. At one point during the investigation into the Leveland sightings of 1957, a letter was sent to from, from the headquarters of the Air Force to um, Hector Quintanella, suggesting, you know, you've got this project we've just established to investigate these things, call upon them if you need them that provides us with a hint of when this, this began. And it ran until 1985 under the name Moondust, when the, when the name was compromised. And I think it was Robert Todd who got the original State Department documents. From that point on, Cliff Stone got documents, I got documents, probably John Greenwald's got a carload of documents as well about Moondust. Um, when the Congress, actually the Senate, um, queried the Air Force about moon dust, they were told no such project existed. He was told, uh, Senator Jeff Bingham was told there was no such project. And I think that statement was technically accurate. There was no project, but there was a moon dust. And um, when documents were sent to the Congressional Liaison Office's office um, at the Pentagon, um, showing moon dust as a um, code, the Air Force revised uh, their um, response by saying, well, there was a, a Project Moondust, but we never used it. Well, we can prove that Moondust was deployed a number of times. But I think what they were saying was technically accurate, but wasn't exactly the whole truth. And so in the book Project Moondust, as it exists today, not the older version from, from the 1990s, but the newer version that just came out uh, this year, I look at all of that sort of thing and kind of explain it in a way that uh, it makes sense, but it also sort of exposes the duplicity on the part of the government, the Air Force, the Pentagon, in the way they handled some of these things. They would tell you the truth, but it wasn't always exactly accurate. And I think, you know, that was a fine line they walked there between actually lying about things. And we know that the, the, the government lies about things. We find examples throughout our history. And some of it is, is legitimate. I mean, there were reasons for the lies to be told to protect national security. And I'm all for that. And other times it was just to keep from looking bad. And I'm not all for that. I think that that should be exposed repeatedly. And we can look at any number of cases in the last that have come out in the last 20, 30 years that shows, shows that sort of thing. So we look at Moondust now and we know, well, there wasn't a project. So when they say there wasn't a project, that was technically accurate. But there was an activity that involved something called Moondust. And you look through the documents that are available online, you look through the documents that I published in uh, the, the book Moon Dust, and you can see that uh, how it operated. There weren't many cases where the returning space debris um, wasn't identifiable as terrestrial. I think in one case, what they found was the um, external fuel tanks for a fighter that had been jettisoned. And I, I'm sure you've seen in the movies, uh, I, the one I remember is P-51, Mustangs going into combat over Europe, and all of a sudden they they um, uh, eject all the external fuel tanks because that of course slows them down and inhibits their performance. So they use those external fire fuel tanks to get into the combat arena, then they they um, eject them immediately, and you see that falling away. And I think in one case that's what was found was something like that. There was other cases where the Material found wasn't as easily identifiable as strange material, but it seems to be of terrestrial manufacture, meaning that the, the materials are what you would expect from terrestrial objects. And there's one or two that are very, very strange that we get into. And um, 
Michael mentioned Antonio Junaeus, who is um, was a science writer, is a science writer, um, fluent in Spanish. Um, I think his father was a diplomat, so he spent a lot of time in New York City, so he was very fluent in English as well. Uh, talks about a case um, in Bolivia where there was um, something that fell and hit a mountain and created a big crater and there was a big activity, military activity to cover the whole thing up. And a couple of guys from civilians, and everybody assumed CIA, but it wasn't necessarily CIA. We've got so many intelligence organizations. We have the DIA, the De Defense Intelligence Agency. We've got the Director of National Intelligence. I think each of the services has an intelligence function at the um, Pentagon level, meaning general officers are involved in it. There is um, other civilian organizations. I think the FBI even has a um, spying operation. I know during World War II, Wild Bill, I want to say Hickok, but Wild Bill Donovan, who was the head of the, city, uh, the OSS, later became the CIA. Uh, and J. Edgar Hoover fought over the um, areas of influence for their various organizations, empire building by both of them. But the point is the, the FBI also has an intelligence function, I think still has an intelligence function um, for around the world, are involved in gathering this information and some of it under the auspices of Moondust or whatever the new name is. What we, what we learned eventually, Robert Todd foiled them asking for the new name and he was told that it was uh, properly classified, the code word was classified. So Moondust was, was out, there's a new, in 1986, there was a new code word assigned to it. And we have not penetrated that at this point. And it may have fallen into disuse given the circumstances around it and just kind of sprung back into existence or something like it um, after the Nimitz sightings in 2004, which leads to where we are today. The point being, <laughs> I suppose we could say everything that is new is really old. We, we've um, been through all this before. But anyway, I laid all that out in Project Moondust. And I think that uh, those of you who are interested in that kind of a history from uh, how we engaged in the gathering of UFO-related materials uh, might be interested in taking a look at that book, which, um, as I say, it's been uh, heavily updated from the original Moondust version from the mid-1990s. And I, I want to make that case because I think it's important to understand it's not the same book. It's really a, a new book. Uh, once again, I have more information about all of this sort of thing at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And before we go, I've got just a few seconds left here now. Um, the book is Understanding Roswell. It dropped officially, I think, uh, just last week. It's been up available on Amazon for a, for a couple of weeks now. And this is a look at the Roswell case, trying to wean out all the nonsense that we get, all the exciting stuff we get to about the alien creatures walking into the base hospital and uh, uh, that sort of thing. Were their bodies found? Yeah, probably were. Were, were they uh, extraterrestrial people? Yes, they probably were. I, I lean that way now, although um, I freely admit we do not have the documentation. We do not have the physical evidence I'd like to have to prove that. We have an awful lot of credible witnesses talking about that, and I think that that's the point. There are multiple witnesses involved from Colonel Blanchard on down to some of the lower-ranking PFCs on the base. That's pretty much it for this week. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about the Yende letters. I got a guy who uh, actually got a copy of the Varro manufactured version of the case for the UFO, which kind of began the uh, Yende letters. We'll be chatting with him and my experiences in getting a copy of the book as well. So we'll, we'll be doing that. So I say I'll be back in about 167 hours. And thank you for tuning in.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.